Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Dollars and Doctor Show. I'm your host, Krithej Varn, founder and financial planner at White Coat Financial. On today's episode, we're going to discuss some of the common types of investments and different asset classes. I'll be doing a simple overview of the common types of investments and asset classes for now, but at a later stage, I'll do a deep dive into everything that's discussed in this podcast. So without further ado, let's dive right in. One of the most common types of investments is stocks, which are known as equities or shares. And when you own a stock, you're essentially owning a small piece of a company. Now, stocks are considered one of the riskier types of investments since their value can fluctuate significantly and there's no guarantee that a company will perform well or even exist in the future. But stocks have the potential to offer some of the highest returns for investors over the long term. As we go through this episode, that's a theme that you're going to see frequently. Investing inherently involves a delicate balance between risk and return on investment. Where there's a potential for higher returns, it often requires a greater level of risk or uncertainty and volatility. Generally speaking, the lower the expected return on an investment, the higher the risk. And the higher the expected return, the lower the risk. But I digress. One way to classify stocks is by their market capitalization or market cap for short. Market cap refers to the total value of a company's outstanding shares of stock, and it's calculated by multiplying the company's stock price by the number of shares outstanding. Now, stocks can be classified as small cap, mid cap, or large cap. Small cap stocks are those with a market cap of less than $2 billion, and these companies are generally younger and smaller than their large cap counterparts, and they may even be riskier because they have a lack of a track record and they may be more vulnerable to market fluctuations. However, small cap stocks also have the potential to offer higher returns. Mid cap stocks have a market cap between $2 billion and $10 billion, and these companies are generally more established than small cap companies, but they may still be considered riskier than large cap stocks. Large cap stocks have a market cap more than $10 billion, and these are generally well-established, financially stable companies with a long track record of performance. Therefore, large cap stocks are generally considered to be less risky than small cap and mid cap stocks, but they may also offer lower returns. Another way to classify stocks is by sector, which refers to the industry that a company operates in. Some sectors include technology, healthcare, finance, and energy, just to name a few. Within each sector, there are also different types of stocks. Growth stocks are those that are expected to grow at a faster rate than the overall market. These stocks may have a higher price-to-earnings ratio, as investors are more willing to pay for future growth. Growth stocks can be riskier than other types of stocks, since they may be more vulnerable to market fluctuations. To put it in simplest terms, growth stocks are companies that still have lots of clients or customers that they can acquire or market share that they could take up in their respective industries. Their business model is usually evolving and being tweaked, and there are a lot more future opportunities for these companies to grow. Think of companies like Uber, Tesla, and Shopify as an example. And for context, the price-to-earnings ratio is essentially just a valuation metric that compares a company's current market price per share to its earnings per share. This helps investors gauge whether a stock is overvalued or undervalued relative to its profitability. In plain English, if a company has a high price-to-earnings ratio, it means that the price of the stock is high when you compare it to its earnings. And on the other hand, if a company has a low price-to-earnings ratio, that means that the stock price is low when it's compared to its earnings. 
Next, we have value stocks, and these are stocks that are trading at a discount relative to their intrinsic value. These stocks may even have a lower price to earnings ratio, and they may be considered undervalued by the market as a whole. Value stocks also tend to be less risky than growth stocks, as they may be more established and more financially stable. These are the types of investments that are usually recommended by the investing legends like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. The idea behind these is that you're making money on the buy. Making money on the buy refers to a strategy of purchasing undervalued stocks, aka value stocks, with the expectation that their intrinsic value will eventually be recognized by the rest of the market, causing the stock price to increase. As I already mentioned, value stocks typically have a low price-to-earnings ratio, indicating that they're relatively cheap when compared to their earnings. And by investing in these stocks, investors aim to profit from the eventual intersection of the stock's price to its true worth. Next up, we have blue chip stocks. And these are shares of well-established, stable companies that have a solid track record of reliability, strong performance, and consistent growth. They're valuable because they tend to be less volatile, they pay regular dividends, and are considered a safer investment in times of market uncertainty. Some current examples of blue chip stocks might include McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Johnson & Johnson, and Procter & Gamble. These companies have been around for a long time, we know what to expect from them, and there isn't a whole lot more that they could grow their businesses. The idea here is that we know these companies will be around tomorrow, and we expect that they'll continue to be successful companies well into the future. To expand a little further on blue chip stocks, I mentioned that they pay regular dividends. Dividends are payments made by a company to its shareholders, usually as a distribution of a portion of their earnings or their profits. And they're typically paid in cash, but sometimes they can even come in the form of additional shares. Now, companies pay dividends for a few reasons. The first is to attract and retain investors. If you think about the difference between growth stocks and blue chip stocks, we expect the price of a growth stock to increase in the future because it has lots of potential for the products and services that they provide, and usually lots of untapped markets. But on the flip side, blue chip stocks have essentially taken over the world, so to speak. They're worldwide brands, they dominate their industries, and they've been around forever. And there isn't a big expectation of growth going forward. For example, how much bigger can McDonald's really get? The obvious difference between the two is risk. With growth stocks, there's a risk that the price may be more volatile, which is really just a fancy term, meaning that the stock price can go up and down lots. And with blue chip stocks, there's usually less volatility. But since most people want their investments to increase in price in the long term, there would be an incentive to invest with growth stocks over blue chip stocks, as the expectation is that you'll make more money since there's a higher relative rate of growth or opportunity available to those stocks. And that's where dividends come in to attract and retain investors. Dividends serve as an incentive to attract new investors and to keep current ones interested in holding the company's stock since they offer a consistent source of income. This can make up for the quote-unquote lack of growth and potentially incentivize investors to put their money in blue chip stocks compared to a growth stock. Dividends also signal a company's financial strength because a regular dividend payment demonstrates that a company's financially stable and profitable, which sends a positive signal to the market. Lastly, dividends offer some portfolio diversification for investors since they provide a relatively stable and predictable income stream, which is particularly appealing during market downturns or for income-focused investors like retirees. 
Dividends are an important aspect of investing, especially for those who prioritize income generation or look for lower risk investments in established companies. To briefly summarize, blue chip stocks represent well-established, financially stable companies with a track record of steady growth, while value stocks are identified as being undervalued based on their fundamentals. It's important to note that blue chip stocks could also be considered value stocks if they're undervalued relative to their earnings and other financial metrics. Finally, there's penny stocks, which are stocks that trade for less than $5 per share. These stocks are considered risky because they're often issued by small, untested companies with little financial backing or financial reporting. Penny stocks are generally not recommended for beginner investors since they could be highly volatile and they're much more vulnerable to market manipulation. We generally never recommend our clients to invest in penny stocks because the risk simply isn't worth the reward in our opinion. To wrap up the summary on stocks, there's a lot of different types of stocks to choose from, each with its own set of risks and potential rewards. So it's important to consider your risk tolerance and your financial goals when selecting stocks and to diversify your portfolio by including a mix of different types of stocks, different markets, and different sectors. Moving on, another type of investment is bonds, which are essentially just loans made by investors to governments or companies. And brace yourself, bonds are a little bit boring to explain, but they're very important as part of a well-diversified investment strategy. When you own a bond, you're essentially lending money to the issuer in exchange for interest payments and the return of your initial investment when the bond matures. Bonds are generally considered to be less risky than stocks since they offer a fixed income and the issuer is generally more stable than a company since the issuer is often a government. But as a result of this perceived safety, bonds generally offer lower returns than stocks. And this makes sense if you think back to the risk and reward relationship that I mentioned earlier. Remember, the lower the expected return on an investment, the lower the expected risk. And the higher the expected return, the higher the risk. There are several different types of bonds, each with their own characteristics and risks. One way to classify bonds is based on their credit quality or the likelihood that the issuer will be able to make the required interest payments and return your initial investment when the bond matures. Bonds can be rated by their credit rating agencies, such as Standard & Poor's and Moody's, with ratings ranging from AAA, which is the highest credit quality, to D, which means default. Government bonds are usually issued by national governments and are generally considered to be the safest type of bond. These bonds are backed by the full faith and credit of the issuing government, which makes them less risky than corporate bonds. Government bonds can be further classified by the length of time until their maturity, with maturities ranging from a few months all the way to 30 years. Municipal bonds are issued by local governments, such as cities or provinces, and are used to finance public work projects, such as schools, roads, and even hospitals. Again, these bonds are generally considered to be less risky than corporate bonds, but they're still riskier than federal government bonds. Corporate bonds are issued by companies and are used to finance a variety of business expansion activities that those companies want to participate in. These bonds are generally considered to be riskier than government and municipal bonds as there's more uncertainty about the company's ability to make the required interest payments and return the principal when the bond matures. Another way to classify bond is by the type of interest payment. Fixed rate bonds pay a predetermined rate for the life of the bond. The interest rate is set at the time the bond is issued and it stays the same until the bond matures. 
Floating rate bonds, on the other hand, pay an interest rate that's tied to an index such as the prime rate. And as a result, the interest rate on a floating rate bond may fluctuate over time depending on the changes in the underlying index. The yield of a bond is usually the return that an investor receives on a bond expressed as a percentage of the bond's face value. Now, bond yields are determined by a variety of factors, including the bond's credit quality, the maturity, and the interest rate. Other factors that affect a bond's yield include market demand, inflation expectations, and the overall level of interest rates. To wrap up this summary of bonds, bonds are a type of investment that offer the potential for a regular income and the return of your principal when the bond matures. There are different types of bonds to choose from, each with its own set of risks and potential rewards, so it's important to consider your risk tolerance and your financial goals when selecting bonds and diversifying your portfolio to include a mix of different types of bonds. Another type of fixed income investment are Guaranteed Investment Certificates, or GICs. Traditional GICs involve investing a sum of money with a financial institution. And from there, that financial institution will guarantee that they'll pay you back 100% of the money that you invested at the end of the term, plus they will guarantee you an interest rate at the end of the term. This is essentially a contract between you and the financial institution, and they're guaranteeing you that they will pay you back 100% of your money plus interest. Investment terms on traditional GICs can range from 30 years all the way up to 10 years. And generally speaking, you cannot access this money for the duration of the investment term, unlike stocks and bonds, which can be bought and sold at any time. GICs can be attractive because they offer a guarantee of your money back, unlike other fixed income assets like bonds, plus they guarantee you an interest rate. There are also market-linked GICs. These GICs offer a variable rate of interest that is linked to the performance of a specific index, such as the S&P 500 index, which is the top 500 companies in America based on their market cap. Typically, on a market-linked GIC, you'll be quoted a floor interest rate and a ceiling interest rate before investing. Then your interest rate is determined depending on the performance of the underlying index during your investment term. Terms on market-linked GICs typically range from two years to five years. For example, if your floor rate is 1% and the index has a loss of 30%, then 1% is the interest that you're going to receive on your investment. Alternatively, if your ceiling is 10% and the underlying index has a gain of 30%, you'll only receive 10% in interest. And if the underlying index performs somewhere between your floor and ceiling rate, then that's the rate that you'll receive on your investment. Market-linked GICs are an attractive option to many investors because they give you downside protection and allow you to participate in some of the upside, all while ensuring 100% of your investment is protected. Another popular option for investments is real estate. In general, the main types of real estate investments include residential, commercial, and industrial real estate properties. Real estate can be a great investment because it provides you with the potential for rental income and equity appreciation over time. Plus, it's a timeless asset class. It always has been and always will be valuable, depending on where you buy your real estate. However, real estate investment, like all investments, still involves risk like price volatility, but more commonly geographical risk, plus the cost of maintenance, repairs, and even potential issues with tenants. Let's break down the different types of real estate investments in Canada. The most common is residential real estate. 
Residential properties are those that are designed for individuals or families to live in. These properties can be further classified into detached houses, which are single-family homes that are standalone structures on a private lot. They offer more privacy and more space, but they may require more maintenance. Plus, these properties, you own the land and the structure, which is not the case for most forms of residential real estate. Next are semi-detached houses, or otherwise known as duplexes, which are two single-family homes that share a common wall. They offer a balance between privacy and affordability. Then there are townhouses, which are multi-unit properties where individual units share walls with the adjacent unit. They provide a compromise between single-family homes and condominiums in terms of space, privacy, and affordability. After that, we have condominiums, which are multi-unit residential properties, where individuals own individual units but share common areas and amenities. Condos typically have lower maintenance responsibilities as the condominium corporation takes care of the common areas. And finally, we have multifamily residential properties. These are usually apartment buildings or complexes with multiple rental units. But for the sake of most mortgage applications, these would be considered commercial real estate by most lenders. This leads to our next real estate category, which is commercial real estate. Commercial properties are used for business purposes and, like residential real estate, can be subdivided into several categories. First, we have office buildings. These are properties designed to accommodate for offices or various types of businesses. Next, we have retail properties. These properties are intended for retail businesses such as shopping centers, strip malls, and even standalone stores. Then we have hotels and motels. Plainly, these properties provide lodging and other sorts of services to travelers and tourists. And finally, we have mixed-use commercial properties. These are buildings that combine residential, commercial, and retail spaces all into one property. Like all the assets discussed so far, there are a lot of different types of real estate properties to choose from, each with its own set of pros and cons, so it's always important to consider your risk tolerance and your financial goals when investing in real estate. Now, with all the assets discussed so far, there are different ways to own them. In the coming weeks, I'll be discussing the difference between owning assets personally versus corporately and the different accounts available for your investments. But in this episode, I'm going to cover the ownership method that has actually created a different type of asset altogether. You can purchase any type of individual stocks, bonds, and real estate properties. And when you buy them, you will typically own these assets directly. However, if you want to diversify and buy multiple types of stocks, bonds, or real estate all within one package, you can buy shares of an investment fund that owns the assets that you desire to invest in. This essentially means that you would own assets indirectly by owning shares of a fund which directly owns the assets that you want to invest in. This is where mutual funds, index funds, exchange-traded funds or ETFs, and real estate investment trusts enter the chat, so to speak. All of these investment vehicles pool money from multiple investors and use it to buy a diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, real estate, and other investments. These funds offer the advantage of diversification since the portfolio is spread out over a variety of assets, but they also offer the advantage of simplicity. Instead of owning shares of 20 different companies, 10 different bonds, and three different types of real estate, for example, you can simply own one or two ETFs and virtually accomplish the same result. On that note, mutual funds differ from the rest of the other fund structures mentioned because they come with additional management fees and they may not always perform as well as individual stocks or bonds. 
I'll have an upcoming episode dedicated to the difference between mutual funds, index funds, and ETFs, but for the sake of this episode, I'll break down the different types of ETFs in Canada. But before I do, I want you to think of ETFs kind of like grocery carts. Grocery carts can hold multiple items all in one convenient vehicle or unit. Similarly, ETFs can hold multiple assets inside one investment vehicle or one investment unit. So here are some of the different types of ETFs. First, there are equity ETFs. These ETFs invest in stocks or shares of companies that are designed to track the performance of a specific index, such as the S&P 500. They might even track a specific sector like Canadian banking or American technology. There are also bond ETFs. These ETFs invest in fixed income assets such as government bonds, corporate bonds, and even municipal bonds. We didn't cover commodities in today's episode, but there are also commodity ETFs. These ETFs invest in physical commodities such as gold, oil, or agriculture, and are designed to track the performance of a specific commodity or commodity index. And finally, there are real estate ETFs or real estate investment trusts, otherwise known as REITs. These ETFs invest in real estate-related assets. And real estate ETFs or REITs offer the opportunity to investors to diversify their portfolio with real estate assets without the need to directly own and manage the physical properties themselves. And last but not least, there are hybrid ETFs. These ETFs invest in a mix of different asset classes and effectively combine all the different ETFs mentioned so far into one ETF. With all of the ETFs above, you typically see a rise in the price of your ETFs if the underlying asset appreciates in value, and you'd receive a dividend if you earn any interest or rental income on the underlying assets. So in some ways, they function almost identically to owning the assets directly. I'll be going over the management of mutual funds, index funds, and ETFs, as well as how they're taxed in a future episode. Finally, there are also alternative investments, which are not so common, including things like private equity and even cryptocurrency. These types of investments can be more complex and are generally considered to be riskier than traditional investments. However, they also have the potential to offer higher returns, but are beyond the scope of today's episode. But I will be discussing them in the future. And to wrap things up, when it comes to investing, it's so important to consider your risk tolerance and your financial goals. Different types of investments will be suitable for different people depending on your risk tolerance, your financial situation, your financial goals, and your investment time horizon, meaning when will you need to use this money. This is why it's important to speak with a professional team like White Coat Financial about what investments are suitable for your unique situation. And that concludes episode six of the Dollars and Doctors show. My goal today was simply to give you an introduction to some of the common investments that you'll come across in your investment journey. There are assets and investments that I've left out and many more details and nuances to the different types of investments that we did cover. This was just meant to give you a simple summary and to get you familiar with the different types of investments. Our future episodes will go much more in depth on everything that we discussed today. This episode was brought to you by White Coat Financial. Our goal at White Coat Financial is to change the financial planning industry by combining a fiduciary duty with a one-stop shop experience for our clients. 
If you're a Canadian doctor and you're looking for financial advice on mortgages, investing, insurance, taxes, or any other financial matters, visit our website, www.whitecoatfinancial.ca. On our website, you'll be able to schedule a free initial consultation to learn about how White Coat Financial can help you protect your income, grow your money, and live better. If you have any questions or feedback for us, you can email me directly at gerthage at whitecoatfinancial.ca. Thank you for your attention, thank you for your time, and thank you for your ongoing support. I look forward to speaking with you soon. The information contained in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and it is not to be taken as financial advice. While the host of this podcast is a registered financial planner, nothing contained in this podcast should be construed as financial advice. Before making any financial decisions, you should always consult with a financial professional about your unique circumstances and personal situation. The hosts and guests of this podcast are not responsible for any errors or omissions or for any actions taken based on the information provided in this podcast. It is the responsibility of the listener to do their own due diligence and make informed financial decisions.